morning, everyone. Yeah, we got the microphone on. I'm on, Anthony. Is it working? Is that better? Sorry, we had a problem at 8 o'clock and I couldn't actually turn the on switch on. <laughs> Senior Minister Intelligence. Anyway, we're going to pray. Uh, we're looking today at the beginning of this series, Ask God Anything. And the topic we've got, if, if God is real, why doesn't he prove himself? So let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray today that you would grant us understanding as we seek to know you better this day. Give us confidence that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have clearly and fully revealed yourself to us and in faith help us to follow him and trust him with our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking today at this very important question, if God is real, why doesn't he prove himself? Now, I want to start with a quote from a fairly well-known atheist from the last century, Bertrand Russell. And Russell said this, The trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of doubt. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. Um, the stupid are cocksure. cocksure. In other words, um, to be confident is really not to be intelligent. Uh, if you're intelligent, you'll have lots of doubts about life. And in particular, he was noted for his cynicism and scepticism about the Christian faith. In fact, he said, I'm an atheist. And that is an intelligent position to hold. If you think you've got confidence about God, actually, you're stupid. Now, are we stupid to be confident about believing in God? It's a very important question to ask. We're here, uh, I guess, many of us um, saying, yes, we're confident. There may be others here. Uh, you're seeking to know, what is this God? Can you have confidence about him? And I want to start by asking the question, should we actually ask questions about God? Do we want to ask questions? And I say that because when you read through the Bible, um, you get lots of people who ask questions about God and they're not all treated kindly. Uh, there's a number of different responses you get to people who ask questions about God. Sometimes people are asking questions because they actually want to evade the truth. Uh, they're not wanting to discover the truth, they're actually doing the opposite. They're trying to evade the truth. But then you'll see other people who are trying to discover the truth. Let me show you a couple of quotes. Now, I've got a number of uh, verses here. Unlike our normal practice, I'm just got, I've got a number of verses from across the Bible, so I've got them all up on the screen. This one is from Matthew 21, if you do want to have a look. And Jesus has entered the temple courts. And while he's there teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. Now, it's just before he's about to die, and it's worth saying, the chief priests, the elders, they were not the biggest fans of the Lord Jesus. In fact, they were the opposite. Uh, they wanted to kill him. And what are they doing? They're questioning Jesus. Now, they're not seeking to know him better. They're actually trying to evade him and trap him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked? And who gave you this authority? They're not trying to discover truth. They're trying to evade truth. And it's worth asking the question, when we ask questions about God, um, what actually is motivating our questions? And these people were roundly condemned by the Lord Jesus because of the attitude they took. His response to them on this occasion was very cryptic. You then get um, a person like Thomas. Now, Thomas is a great character. Um, he asks a number of very probing questions. 
But unlike the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, uh, Thomas is treated very graciously by the Lord Jesus. In fact, one of the most well-known and well-loved and most simple yet profound statements in all of Scripture about the Lord Jesus comes because Thomas asked a question. And Jesus has been saying, look, I'm about to depart. I'm going to my father's house. There are many rooms prepared for me. And Thomas asked the question, the very honest question, um, actually, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And he's like that very brave child in uh, school who is brave enough to put their hand up and say, teacher, I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, It's all double Dutch to me. And Jesus here is not cynical in his response. He's not cryptic in his response. He's very gracious in his response. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Thomas the disciple was confused. Jesus has said he's going away and he doesn't understand and so he asked the honest question. Now what's the difference in these questions? Thomas, I take it, had faith and he was seeking understanding. The Pharisees, the chief priests, had unbelief and they were seeking confirmation of their unbelief. You see, at the bottom of our questions, we've got to ask, what is actually motivating us? Is it that we have some faith and we want to pursue knowledge to find out what this God is about? Or is it rather that we've got unbelief and we just want to ask questions to dismiss what we don't want to know? You might ask the question, well, how can you have faith if you haven't got proof? I would say to you, actually, the paradigm of Scripture is we come with faith seeking understanding and when I say come with faith I mean even faith as small as a little mustard seed there is a sense of which um, we come open to believe and we want to discover what is the reality of this faith as against those who come not wanting to believe they've actually made up their minds there is nothing there I don't want to know my questions are designed to confirm what I really want to have decided there is no God and I ask you this morning when you ask questions of God do you come seeking understanding even with the smallest amount of faith or do you come actually not wanting to really know Uh, you've already made your mind up there really can't be a God because the encouragement of the Bible is come even with the smallest amount of faith and seek understanding But what about the question of proof with God? Um, Let me put up on the screen this one. It's from John chapter 2, verse 18. You see, the Bible shows the question of proof can be fraught with danger. The Jews had just witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ in John's Gospel uh, demonstrate his glory by doing his first wonderful miracle in that Gospel. He turned water into wine and he demonstrated his authority his glory in doing that the Jews came after that and said and demanded of him what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this (laughs) he's just done a miracle (laughs) to demonstrate his authority Uh, we want another one Uh, we want more proof Uh, you see they really don't want to find out do they 
they're trying to put him on the spot to prove he doesn't have that authority. And Jesus doesn't respond kindly to them. He just gives them a cryptic response. Well, you pull this temple down, I'll re- rebuild it in three days. What are you talking about, Jesus? And he leaves them. And so you see here, Jesus treats people according to their heart. And my encouragement is, um, come today with an open heart, even with the smallest amount of faith, and seek understanding. Let me go back to uh, Bertrand Russell. He was once asked, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? And his response was, was, I will tell him that he did not give me enough evidence. Now, it's fascinating that he would say that because actually when you read through the scriptures, um, the Bible will say there's lots of evidence. But you see, people have, through history, wanted to doubt the existence of God. Let me give you one of the most famous ones. He's a philosopher from Scotland called David Hume. Uh, And David Hume is kind of the father of all sceptics. He wrote and thought in the 1700s and many people after him have quoted him. This is what David Hume said. I'll read it to you. It's a long quote, but because he is so significant in this whole line of scepticism, I've got it up there on the screen for you. If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school of metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? If I can simplify that down. uh, When you ask the question about God and believing in him, is there any abstract reasoning... In other words, can maths prove the existence of God by numbers? And he says, no. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? In other words, when you come to the realm of science, uh, can you conduct an experiment and repeat that to prove the existence of God? No. Well, then commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Now, what David Hume was saying, and his argument has been very popular, uh, actually, you think about the world we live in. Uh, If you can't prove it by maths or science, it's not real. Now, there's a great reduction in that argument. There's two things that's worth saying. Um, You can't actually prove his argument by his argument. You see, if his argument had weight, his argument would be able to be proved by his argument itself. But you can't prove his argument by maths or science. Uh, Secondly, what he's saying is actually the only world you can ever know is a physical world. There is no external world because maths and science, all they're capable of is measuring this physical world. By definition, he has actually ruled out there being a supernatural world, a God. You see, he's created an argument out of unbelief and confirmed it in his unbelief. And many have picked this up and many have run with this. But here's the Bible's response. Have a look at the book of Romans. It's got some very strong words to say. Uh, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, the problem in the Bible is not the lack of evidence. It's not the lack of proof. 
Uh, In fact, the way the Bible presents the message of God, the assumption is people believe. Uh, The Bible has no recognition of atheists. What it recognises though is that there is a whole body of reason for believing and what people do with that is suppress that truth. In other words, atheists really are people who are actually suppressing the truth that God has given to us. Now that might sound a very strong thing to say, but that is God's take on life. You see, we don't know God, not because he's not knowable, but because we don't want to know him. Uh, We suppress the truth. As I said, the assumption of the Bible is that God exists and the interesting thing is from an anthropological point of view, if you go through history and anthropology, the study of humanity and, if I can say, the different races that make up this world, one of the things they keep finding whenever they just have discovered a new people group is that they've discovered a group of people who worship. Uh, It has been one of the, if I can say, most difficult things for atheists to come to grips with because, you see, built into humanity in the way we've been designed is a, a need and a recognition that there is someone who is greater, who is higher, who is more powerful, who is over us, who we give our allegiance and worship to. And this is something that is universal around the world from every age and every people group whenever they've discovered different types of people at some point they will discover worship the recognition that there is someone greater over us and you see what the bible goes on to say is this if you look at the next part of romans Um, when you think about the proof of god Uh, There's a number of ways I want to say the Bible gives us proof. The first is the fingerprints of God. And fingerprints are an interesting thing. You know, if you've got a crime scene, uh, the person is not there, but they've left evidence of them being there at the crime scene. Their fingerprints are there. And that's what fingerprints or footprints do. Uh, They tell you someone was here. And I think the fingerprints of God are all over this creation. And this is what um, Romans goes on to say in terms of reflecting on people suppressing the truth, for what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What God says is actually, when you look at this world that I created, um, you should be able to work out that there is a God who is over this world. Uh, There is a God, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is being made. You see, the problem is, though this is evident, people suppress this truth. But just reflect with me about the creation we live in. Uh, When you look at the universe, um, I'm not the only one who would say this. It is just far too complex and detailed and intricate for there not to be a designer. Uh, In the words of the Intelligent Design School of Thought, there's an irreducible complexity about the creation that shouts incredibly loudly, there is a creator who has designed this world. And to be honest, I do not understand how you cannot um, come to that conclusion when you work out, walk out of the building and see the glory of this world, the incredible beauty 
that is present all around us, from the smallest of flowers to the animal kingdom, uh, to the way humanity has been designed. There is just an incredible beauty about this. Uh, There is a complexity to us. Uh, You think just of the human body, just think of the human parts, the eye, the complexity that is involved in being able to have sight and colour. And yet there is a simplicity to this design that is just amazing. And yet this world is so much more than just the physical. There is a sense of which there is life. Uh, There is relationship. Uh, There is meaning in life and purpose to life. Uh, Did all of this come out of some primordial swamp that we just by chance accidentally involved into creatures of meaning and significance and beauty and grandeur and this creation just evolved in this atomistic, random, chance way. I think it's just incredible to have that faith to make that statement. This world, the Word of God says, speaks of a creator. It speaks of a designer. But not just the world. Um, The second thing I want to say is our conscience. Because one of the things that marks us out as people is that we have a sense of right and wrong. Uh, There is a sense of a moral compass. And you see, unlike the animal world, we have a sense of justice that is built into us. Uh, There is a right and wrong. And no doubt, um, a part of this is a social construct. In other words, how we will define right and wrong Um, will be different according to different cultures. But yet all of us deep down have a sense that there is right, there is wrong, and that we should live according to what is right. You see, that is the whole sense of justice within us. From the earliest of age, you'll see children cry out, what's one of the cries they make? That's not fair. And it doesn't stop when they're young. I'll never forget uh, former Senator Gareth Evans, and I'm not sure if it was when he was the Foreign Affairs Minister or later on uh, with his international work. He was confronted with some of the evils of former Yugoslavia, and I think it was President Milosevic, and there was genocide that took place. And I'll never forget him being interviewed on TV, and I quote, he said something to this extent, surely there must be a special place in hell reserved for the people who have committed such atrocities. Now, I'm not sure where he is in terms of his belief, but what was striking was he was saying, surely there must be justice. And if there is not justice in this world for what was committed to these children, surely in the life to come there must be a justice. Uh, There must be a God who holds us accountable for the atrocities committed in this life. That is not something you see in the animal kingdom, in the natural world. It is something that we have been created with. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. You see, after saying the creation speaks of a creator, he goes on to speak about us. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's us, do by nature, in other words, just by the very way they've been designed, things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them at other times 
defending them. Uh, you see, all of us have that sense of moral compass, uh, that sense of conscience. Uh, that's why we feel guilt. It's actually the way we're designed. Uh, it's a kind of an internal um, trip guard to remind us we are doing the wrong thing and that we should seek to do the right thing. Now, I want to say uh, these two things, the creation and our conscience and the way they play out, they speak of the fact there is a God. What they won't do, though, the Bible says, is lead you to a saving knowledge and relationship with the living God. You need something more. Um, when you go to the beginning of the Bible, actually, I just want to come back to this quote. This is a great quote uh, because this sums up, really, uh, the reality of people suppressing the truth. You see, the reality is that God is out there, um, but people don't want to know him. And this guy is a professor of philosophy at New York University, Thomas Nagel. He's not Mr. Bean. And I want to quote to you what he says. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. Actually, I don't want there to be God I don't want the universe to be like that. You see, this is the problem of unbelief. We suppress the reality that there is a God out there because we don't want there to be a God out there. Why don't we want there to be a God out there? We don't want the universe, in the words of Thomas Nagel, to be like that. In other words, we don't want to have to give account to this God that one day we will have to bow the knee before him and that he, as the God of heaven and earth, will bring us in judgment. We don't want that. And so we want to do away with the idea that there is any God. And the thing that disturbs this man is, um, I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. And that's very telling because, you see, what it's saying is this is not a matter of intellect, faith. The issue of faith and unbelief is actually a matter of our heart and what we want and don't want in life. But the great thing is, um, God has not left us alone. Uh, God has spoken. And for me, the two most convincing proofs of God's existence and our capacity to know him are because he has spoken to us, we hear the voice of God and we have seen him, we see the face of God. Let's have a look at firstly the voice of God. Hebrews says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. Now, one of the things people say when they ask the question, um, show me proof, I'd like to see God. Have you ever heard that? Now, the Bible says actually you could have seen God if you were here at the right time. Adam and Eve saw God. They walked with him in the garden. And you see, before the fall, when humanity rebelled, occurred, humanity was actually able to dwell with God face to face and we could see him. Now, because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were cast out of the garden. The way humanity experiences God after that is not by face to face fellowship but by hearing his voice. And the history of the Bible is at one level a history of God speaking and calling people to himself. 
And so you go to the very beginning chapters of when God begins his rescue plan and Abraham, how does God meet Abraham? He speaks. Abraham's out in the desert and he hears God speak. What happens after that? Joseph, he speaks to Joseph. What happens to Moses? There's a burning bush and what happens? God speaks. And all through the scriptures, people are confronted with the reality that this God who made the world personally wants to know them. And he does it by speaking. That's what the writer in Hebrews is saying in the past. God spoke to our ancestors, to Samuel, to David, to Elijah, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to Daniel, to all of his people. He spoke. And this is the profound thing. You see, there is not just a God who is out there, who is over us, who you wonder, what is he like? God speaks to us so that we know him in the scriptures. And that's why they are so important. Because as you read the word of God, and this is something that has been true through all of history, God himself comes to you and speaks to you so that you know him. Now the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Do you want to see God? Well, you could have if you lived at the right time. And you see, after the fall and Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden, God in his grace came amongst us. And you could have seen him and walked with him if you were there in Palestine in the time of Jesus because... Jesus is not just a man. He was the Son of God. And when you see Jesus, you don't just see a man, you actually see the face of God. That is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying here. He is the exact radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And when Thomas asked the question, we don't understand where you're going, Jesus' response was what? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He then goes on to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Where is the proof of God's existence? Well, it's in this creation. Uh, It's in the way he's wired us with our conscience. But most profoundly, we meet him, we know him, we experience him as he speaks to us by his word. And that is most profoundly in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you come here seeking to know God, the great news is you can. And even with faith as small as a mustard seed, you can discover there is a God who loves you and who knows you and wants you to come back and wants you to know him and be part of his family. My story is this. I grew up in the church. Um, It didn't do a lot for me. I walked away from it and I walked away from faith in God and I remember saying, uh, this God thing with a friend of mine, we don't want anything to do with it. 
And it was not because uh, we didn't think it could have been real. Uh, We had a sneaking suspicion it probably was, but we didn't want it to be real. You see, what we wanted to do was live life without God. And I talked to a few people and I, I couldn't understand what they were talking about in terms of the Christian faith. And I thought, that's good for you, I'm going to walk away from this. And I wanted to pursue what 16-year-old and 18-year-old and 20-year-old guys wanted to pursue, the whole life of um, partying and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Um, it didn't lead to the life I thought it would. It led actually to despair and emptiness. And I remember praying in a moment of great honesty when I was 20 and with faith that really was only as small as a mustard seed. God, if you are out there, help me to know you. You see, I came not this time with unbelief, wanting to seek confirmation of that. I came with the smallest amount of faith, seeking understanding. And I didn't know who this God really was. I just had a hunch he was real because I'd seen the way he changed people's lives. And I thought there's more to this than what I had first thought as a teenager growing up. And with faith as small as a mustard seed, I prayed, God, please help me to know you if you're there. And I was kind of scared because I thought I might find out he's real. And my journey began by reading through the Gospels. And I read through Mark's Gospel five times. And in that, if I can say, experiment of faith, God spoke to me. And I met the living word, the Lord Jesus. And I was confronted with God himself in his word, in the person of his son, who is the exact radiance of the Father and who was calling me to come home and who was saying to me, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And I remember waking up and giving my life to this Lord Jesus and following him. You see, the question of proof in God's existence is a question of faith. And you will come to know him through faith. And faith is not antithetical to reason. It's not opposite to reason. Uh, It's not you can have intelligence or you can have faith. And it's not just a will to believe everything else to the contrary. In other words, I want to believe even in spite of what everything else points to. No, biblical faith is substantive. It's based on the knowledge that the one in whom that faith is placed has revealed himself and has spoken to us in the person of the Lord Jesus and his fingerprints are all over this creation. No, there are good reasons to believe and to have faith and as you have faith you will find understanding by listening to him speak through the living word and through the words of scripture. Do you want to know there's a God? There's lots of proof. And you can hear him speak to you. Simply open his word and look to his son. And I can guarantee you, if you do that with a heart that says, Lord, I'm seeking to understand, you will find. Because Jesus says, ask, seek and knock and the door will be opened and friends if you don't know this God may I encourage you grab a Bible grab a gospel 
and start reading it for yourself and discovering the living God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, because he will change your life. He will forgive your sins. He will deliver you from judgment and eternal death and bring you into his eternal family with great joy and great rejoicing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without proof or evidence. But Father, the heart is really the heart of the problem. And so I pray, soften our hearts and open them so that we might have faith and we might seek understanding in your word and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And give us confidence in you and we pray be speaking to us in your word through the Lord Jesus helping us to grow in him and being confident in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.